Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Later on, BIV's weekly tech panel discusses whether Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, whether they need government oversight. We have two events coming up I'd also like to mention. One is our BIV FinTech panel on September 13th. The event will cover how small and medium-sized businesses can leverage financial technologies to their advantage. We'll also go over how to make informed decisions in this evolving landscape. And speaking of evolving landscapes, we are now just weeks away from the legalization of recreational cannabis. If you're curious about the business and investment opportunities legalization has created and will create, you can join us on September 26th at our Cannabis Investors Forum. For details on these events and other events, visit BIV.com slash events. And coming up next, co-hosts Kirk LaPointe and Tyler Orton will take a look at BC's tax competitiveness with Business Council of BC Chief Economist Ken Peacock. Are provincial policies making it more expensive to run a business here in British Columbia? In his latest column in Business in Vancouver, economist Ken Peacock, he crunches the numbers to look at whether or not we're losing ground as a competitive jurisdiction. And joining us is the author of that. It's Ken Peacock, Chief Economist at the Business Council of British Columbia. Ken, thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, you're very welcome. Good to be here. Let's uh, let's talk about what constitutes competitiveness in this day and age. Mm-hmm. Is it tax rate? What would what would you say are the ingredients of a competitive jurisdiction? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question, Kirk, because it, competitive means different things to a lot of people. There's uh, there's sort of a definition that I like, and it's just it's the ability to attract investment and nurture and grow an economy that provides uh, opportunity and high quality services and things like that for its citizens. Now, kind of if you come at it more from a kind of economist perspective or a sort of a hardline business perspective, there is this notion of dollars and cents and bottom line and, you know, taxes are always kind of front and center when people talk about competitors because they're easy to identify. Tax rates are readily available, but it's much more complex than that. You've right, got quality but, of workforce and all these other elements. So competitiveness doesn't necessarily mean just a kind of a mercenary business climate. Definitely not. Definitely not. Huh. And, and, and I mean, I would even argue you don't have to have the lowest tax rates among jurisdictions. That's among not competitiveness. That, yeah, that's, it's not just what it's about. So like I was saying, I mean, here in British Columbia and in, in Vancouver region, uh, businesses will tell you that we have a very good high quality workforce, high quality pool of labor, particularly when you compare it to other jurisdictions. Some people say, you know, that you go to the Southern US and the quality of an employee for an entry-level job versus quality of employee entry-level job here. Very, very different. So you have that infrastructure is very, very big. Location features into competitiveness, good access to ports, rail networks, highways. Um, And the regulatory environment is very, very significant and very big. And that kind of butts up against the the tax environment because those are areas that government has control over uh, more so than some other areas. But to a certain degree in your column, you're looking at, I guess, most recent history of British Columbia and a lot of changes that have been afoot. How have we seen maybe that competitiveness erode to a certain degree here on the West Coast? Yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of layers. There's lots of layers to that. The uh, We focus in our, the most recent column kind of on, on the changes in tax and we go back 
five years, um, just to give a, sort of a, a, long, a bit of a longer term perspective and not necessarily lay it all at the foot of the current government who hasn't been in, in very long. So, I mean, we go back to the reinstatement of the, the PST, um, the, the, the loss or the, the rescinding of the agency and the reinstating of the PST was actually the biggest business tax increase in the province's history. Now, I know there's unusual circumstances around it and all that, but at the end of the day, it, it was a substantial tax increase. And that's because most people probably don't really realize that although that's a retail sales tax, businesses pay about 40% of the total because they pay on all the inputs they buy, be it a service, mm-hmm. be it a computer a desk and whatnot. So 7% on everything they use in their business production process gets uh, taxed at 7%. And so that was, a, that was a big tax hit. Does it matter in a certain respect, Ken, that uh, say taxes are increasing if uh, services are also aligned with them and they are improving along this? So does it in the end much matter about in terms of Canada's competitiveness or BC's competitiveness if you have a, a kind of a matching investment of tax dollars into certain services that are required by society? Into certain, I, I, you could absolutely make a, a fairly strong case that depending on where those tax dollars are being allocated, I mean, even perhaps infrastructure is even a, a clearer example. Mm-hmm. So if the dollars are going into infrastructure that facilitates movement of goods and, and people, uh, that, that would be beneficial. But, you know, by, by and large, most of those items and this quality of services should be able to be financed within our kind of existing tax regime. There's a, there's a fair bit of money sloshing around. And then government does deliver a heck of a lot of services and a lot of products to its citizens. But uh, the sense is that we should probably be able to do a reasonably good job in the current tax environment. Our concern about tax increases actually probably reflects more of the move in the U.S. Yes. We used to have in Canada and, and in B.C. by extension, a fairly competitive tax environment. We had lower taxes than U.S. personal and corporate. Of course, the Trump tax. Donald Trump passed. changed that. Donald Trump changed it kind of on a dime very quickly. And uh, now they have more competitive, uh, slightly lower tax rates. And the thing that is particularly worrisome is the uh, speeding up of deducting of investment in capital equipment. Yeah. So basically they can expense it in one year right now in the States. Provides a very, very strong incentive to invest. And so when people are looking, you know, companies and businesses are looking where to deploy capital, you start looking at the US jurisdiction, some NAFTA trouble, some border issues, and the fact that these tax cuts and the tax environment is now quite different in the States. It it provides a bit of an allure and it incentive. It seems to be one of Canada's great vulnerabilities right now. I think we're second last in the OECD in terms of uh, actual foreign investment. Yeah, we, we are struggling so, with foreign investment. Definitely. And and so, again, does that render Canada uncompetitive, or is it and is it a, a relative quick fix in order to deal with it? Yeah, it's it's a t- these competitive measures and metrics and notions uh, they they can be tough to fix. There's a bit of a reputational thing. And then Canada might be getting a, a bit of a reputation for perhaps higher taxes, but more, it's more in the complexity of the regulatory environment and the sheer complexity of trying to get anything done. And we don't really have to look any further than our most recent example of uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, you know, a, a permitted project that essentially was blocked and, and the proponent effectively gave up on it and sold it to the government. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of maybe the apex or the pinnacle, but there's countless, countless examples of just long delays and permitting processes and mm. things like that is really where Canada struggles. 
Hmm. You know, uh, somebody might say, well, we don't want to get, in, get into like a race to the bottom though. So what are kind of the strategies we could take where we can remain competitive? We can, you know, introduce maybe a tax regime that is making sense in, in this day and age. Are, are there just efficiencies that we can find that just seem really obvious? I, I keep going back to a value-added tax that seems like it's too much of a political hot potato to introduce to British Columbia once again. But I mean, are, are there any ideas floating around out there that just make a lot of obvious sense to well, you? Well, that's you, you brought up. I mean, very, very. It's very, very clear to tax economists and and people who study this and the academic literature that you're, you're spot on. I mean, a value-added tax, an HST, would be the single most. Uh, beneficial thing we could do to improve the competitiveness in the tax environment. In the Who province. wants to run for office but while we discuss this? Yeah, <laughs> fraught with political complications mm-hmm. and, and peril. So the simplest thing we can do, kind of in effect, is off the table. Probably yeah. off the table, unless unless a, a politician is going to run on a platform and say, you know what, we're going to revisit it. It's good for the economy. It, it could be structured to protect low, lower income people. Um, and you know, long term, it is would be beneficial for for the province. But anyway, that that's a discussion. Point no, no, fair, fair enough, though, Ken. But don't you think that at least in the short term, there's going to be pressure on the federal finance minister Bill Morneau when he does his economic update to take a look at things like capital cost allowance write downs and trying to make them uh, all basically fully deductible in the first year uh, around all of this? Is that one of those very simple Canada versus U.S. things? That ought to be remedied before we get terribly far along here. Yeah, I th- I, and I think there's going to be a, a great deal of pressure for them to look at that. I'd be surprised if they went to full expensing. I'd like to see it. It would be a great thing to do. I, I think we should be competitive on that basis with the U.S. And, you know, f- at, at the end of the day, if you don't attract investment – you're not getting jobs. You're not becoming more productive, and and you're not expanding, and you know, and creating good jobs. You need to attract those investment dollars, machinery, equipment, opening up a new plant, opening up a new storefront, whatever it is. It all costs capital, right? So making the environment attractive for bringing capital into the jurisdiction is should be kind of a top priority consideration. Not the only consideration, but it should be one of the top priorities. One one of the biggest changes that I think. Just maybe the average British Columbians are going to notice since the new government, though, is we're going to have MSP premiums, you know, being eliminated, and in its place, we're going to have the this employer health tax coming into effect. Though, is this, I guess, the right path to find a, the the right balance that average British Columbians need versus what employers are going to do? Are are there ways that this could be improved at all? That's a good question. Uh, it's it's a tricky issue. Uh, if you look across Canada, most other provinces have a payroll tax of mm-hmm. some form, and Ontario has one that's kind of dedicated towards health, uh, as as the BC one that is about to come to life in in January next year uh, is. It's directed towards health, so it's. You know, I, I understand why the government chose it, because we didn't really have a, a substantial payroll tax in British Columbia. We had that MSP premium that some employers paid, but it was optional, so some individuals paid it. My sense is it's about a 50-50 split between who paid it, employers and individuals. Uh, that That is a tough one to make simpler. It, it's it's a tax on payroll. Uh, unfortunately, it's the burden of it's going to be borne by like a smaller segment of the uh, population of businesses because for the most part, smaller businesses aren't going to pay it. So it's going to be heaped on businesses that are 
not necessarily large, but they have 10, 15, 20 employees and up uh, disproportionately hit them. And I think in, in January, there's going to be a lot of businesses that are a little bit surprised, may not have been paying too much attention to this. Yeah. And it's a substantial hit. I've talked to people, you know, they've, they've got small entities, maybe 10, 15 employees, and it's going to cost them another 30, 40,000, hundreds of thousands of dollars for many businesses. Yeah. We, we get ourselves uh, almost trapped in comparing ourselves to the United States. And of course, under the Trump administration, it be, has become easier to compare oneself to the U.S. because of uh, because of basic uh, corporate tax rates and so on. Um, and yet, I, I've read so much uh, on both sides of the border and about how the breaks for taxes have largely steered themselves away from the middle class and have moved to those who are upper income. Mm. And that includes Canada as well. Yep, yep. Are, are we in a space now where we're still trying to convince ourselves about about how taxation levels are helping the middle class? Um, I, th- I think that debate has largely run its course. And I th- there's, a, there's a recognition among policymakers uh, that there is some need to pay, pay attention to this so-called hollowing out of, of the middle class and the fact that the middle class is not reaping some of, some of the benefits, the economic benefits of society and an economy that's growing. Uh, I would say it's much more acute in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have done a better job in Canada in, in trying to spread uh, the benefits of economic growth uh, more evenly across the population. But having said that, there, there probably is more that can be done and more to be done. And, you know, I, I don't, don't want to get into the politics of it all, but I mean, if you look at what's happened in the United States, it's difficult to not recognize that part of that hollowing out is a factor in the rise of the Donald Trump and the populism and the, and the kind of the backlash that you see in the United States. Yeah, I wonder whether if if the walls really close in on Donald Trump, uh, where is that going to leave us in terms of understanding? Uh, it, it Might that actually be the situation where uh, we begin to roll back some of the American tax changes? Uh, in the event of a post-Trump world, yeah, yeah, that we, who who knows that that makes Canada makes Canada then competitive. It makes Canada, yeah, then competitive. Yeah, well, and again, but back to your, I mean, like I said earlier, and and your opening comments, uh, taxes, yes, front and center, they're easy to to see and and measure, but there's so many other elements to competitiveness, and I, I think we. We should be thinking about that here regionally uh, in, in the lower mainland, in, in particular about congestion. I mean, I, I, I commute, so I spend a lot of time kind of fulminating on congestion and, and what can be done. And we're, we have this challenge and this reality that people can't afford to live here. Uh, so they have to move farther out, but the transportation options are very limited. So uh, we're, I, I think we're in this sort of bit of a box. Myself, I we're think, in a box here for several years still. Still, still, the, we is, need to the, throw some money at transportation in in a real way and in a serious manner. Uh, figure out how to fund it and, and get access to some of these more remote uh, parts of the Lower Mainland, uh, so people can get to work in a reasonable amount of time. I'm sure that's not going to be a political snake pit whatsoever, though. So uh, <laughs> that'll be easy for this region. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, Ken, always great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Very today. welcome. Thanks for having me. That's Ken Peacock. He's chief economist at the Business Council of BC, and you can see his latest column in the current edition of Business in Vancouver newspaper. <laughs> we 
We're taking an in-depth look at social media for this week's tech panel discussion. With me in studio, Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa, and Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having me. Our first story, this isn't something new. UK broadcasters are the latest to call on government to introduce independent regulatory oversight of social media content. Ali, do we need additional oversight? What do you think? Well, I think the trend is is going in this direction already. It looks like uh, lawmakers in the U.S. are summoning the large uh, uh, tech companies to come in again this this week. It sounds like Twitter and Facebook and Google will be in front of Congress. So mm-hmm. uh, I suspect this is the direction that uh, most large governments are going to take this. But there's kind of a battle, right? There's a struggle. Tech companies not necessarily willing to play ball. And there was discussion over whether Google's CEO would actually himself go to testify. This is going to be a bit of a challenge, I think, Linda. I think so. I think BlackBerry was leading the way last year when they said, sure, we will comply with law enforcement. If you give us a court order, we will attempt to break our encryption. Not saying we can do it, coming from the CEO, but we will try. So that might be an answer for all of them. Yeah, I mean, I I think about other industries that over the decades sort of fell in line with government regulation, because, you know, there's lots of industries that just popped up over the decades that, you know, did not necessarily have government regulation when they started. But over time, uh, regulators sort of, you know, had to put their foot down. So this is this doesn't seem to be a, a new phenomenon. I just think they're a little bit late in this case and it caused an election, you know, it caused an election disaster. But uh, it's not a new phenomenon. Yeah, exactly right. Agreed. And of course, these companies, they're subject to the laws that are already in place. It's just they're a little bit different in nature. So there are questions around, you know, what laws apply to them in what cases. And I'm curious if governments have their way, what would they try and regulate? What could we regulate to try and come with a better solution? Well, if we're tra- if we're talking about trying to wiretap, trying to get into the conversations in these encrypted streams, the massive concern, of course, is that we open a back door and now everybody who has the capability can get in. That leaves these systems immensely vulnerable to attack. Uh, People use encrypted uh, communication for a reason and not just always for bad reasons. There's really good reasons to have encrypted conversations. So how we open a door, how we provide access to uh, the regulators and the people who need it and keep it closed to everybody else is a question I do not have the answer to. Yeah, I, I actually don't know if the laws exist today to protect people appropriately. Right? You know, this this might be why they need the CEO of Google and Twitter to come and testify, because they probably don't know the answer yet. I think you're, that's exactly, yeah, I agree. I don't think they do know the answer, and I don't know how much they effort they want to apply to it. But we will find out, because I think government's going to be pushing hard now. It's going to be interesting heading into this election, though, because, uh, you know, you already see the Russians are trying to uh, get into the you know, get into social media again. They're, they're already spending the dollars uh, on Facebook ads and other and other things. And even Facebook announced it the other day. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. One of the concerns, of course, uh, sort of against more government involvement is the issue of censorship too, right? Banning to the point where freedom of expression, freedom of speech, uh, they become issues and you lose that. Is is there is it possible to find a middle ground? 
I don't know about the middle ground. You know, Alex Jones is back on Facebook. He's his 30 days in the corner is up. Hmm. I think we found <laughs> that um, that just pushed these conversations over to the private groups. If we're talking specifically about Facebook and and how we're not Facebook's not censoring the private groups in any meaningful way. So censorship has to come at the platform level. And I don't particularly want government more involved in that, but we need Facebook specifically. I would like to see them have a really a more um, concise and appropriate way for me as a user to feel good about using the platform. I don't want to use a platform where hatred and, and vulnerable, vulnerable groups are attacked daily. And I think that's where the government can play a role. They, you know, they can, they can create the law, they can create the regulation, they could standardize among platforms the rules and the, and the, you know, even the playing field. And then, you know, you're absolutely right. Let's rely on the platforms to actually follow the rules uh, that are set out for them. That's right. Because everybody in society has to follow the, lo- the rules that government sets. So why not these platforms? Yep. Can we rely on them to follow the rules? Because there have been instances, of course, where they haven't. I, so I think if you have them at the table to create the rules, mm. uh, then I believe they'll be able to follow them. I mean, they're, they're going to create the rules in a way that their, their businesses can still thrive, um, but in a way that I think will protect the public interest. That's and, much just my guess. Yes. And users do need to start talking up more. We do need to insist uh, that these platforms do better for us as the users who are actively engaged in them. So a big part of the process is the users of the platforms talking up and saying what they expect. And you've mentioned platforms, of course, Twitter, Facebook, they maintain they are platforms and not publishers. And that's an important distinction in terms of what their responsibilities are. Are they maybe starting to creep toward publishing when you look at Facebook and its aims around video and how these companies are evolving? Are they still platforms or are they I mean, starting Amazon, to be publishers? I mean, they're going to be publishers because Amazon is, you know, wants to be the net, net, next uh, Netflix. Uh, YouTube is already the second uh, most viewed uh, uh, website on the planet. It has tons of original content. Yeah. These, are, these are not platforms. Facebook is trying to get in there with Watch. They're all getting into the TV game. So, you know, publishers of all types of content, whether they want to call themselves that or not, we are uh, <laughs> living in a world where each platform wants us to view all of our content. Yeah, and never leave. Space. And this has been a heavily regulated uh, space for many decades. You know, we have CRTC, we have uh, in the US uh, similar bodies um, that are regulating uh, content on on TV and radio. You know, they've been doing it for decades. Which so. is why they don't want to call themselves publishers. Yeah. They, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we were sort of touching on this a little bit, but the second story I wanted to focus on was how much government involvement is actually too much. The Five Eyes governments, so that's the governments of Canada, the UK, the US, Australia, and New Zealand. There was a, a, a quiet memo issued last week asking technology companies to build in backdoor access into platforms so that the, the spy agencies and governments can access users' encrypted data. And they suggested that if this isn't done voluntarily, they'll face legislation that would compel access. We've seen specific instances of this before. It seems like a big distinction between, like you mentioned before, Linda, complying on a case-by-case basis and then building in permanent access. Is that a privacy concern? I believe it's a huge privacy concern. Back to the Russian involvement in the last election and looking like this election, having any possibility for that encryption to be broken, whether it's by the platform itself, by the government regulators, or by the people we don't want in there, 
Uh, it all opens those communication channels up to uh, misuse of the communication, misuse of the platform. I think it's a very big step. And that's why I liked BlackBerry's CEO, uh, his answer on that. Comply mm-hmm. or, or compel us to do it with a court order and we'll try, but we can't be, we're not going to promise that we'll be able to do it. But I'm wondering then if a response like that, it puts them above the law. If they say, oh, we'll try, but we can't, you can understand why governments might say, well, you have to. But I, I'm not sure what the, the right answer is here. Well, I mean, they're going to market with products and and selling the consumer on a private and encrypted platform. So, you know, what's their what's their risk as a business if mm. uh, they open up the doors to to this to this information to anyone? I, I would suspect mm. that risk is much bigger. You know, and some of this encryption is unbreakable. Not necessarily. I'm not familiar whether or not Google's and Apple's is unbreakable, but some of the some of the tech, encryption technology coming out is unbreakable. So we will, if it isn't today, it will be soon. So mm-hmm. where does that leave us with these channels? If it is actually unbreakable encryption, maybe these are just places that um, government uh, regulators can't get into. Maybe these are conversations they can't be part of. But what I would guess is if they did build a backdoor and government could get in, the conversations they're trying to monitor would just slide over to another channel that is unbreakable. And this group, they're sort of known, their purpose is to share intelligence to some extent. So in seeing this memo come from a group, I sort of wonder, well, does this mean that data could be shared very easily across borders, whereas in other instances, maybe it wouldn't be? Yeah, I, I mean, you have, you have to think it is being shared across borders uh, today and probably in the interest of uh, security first, but uh, I'm sure there's other, other reasons information is being shared as well. I mean, the reality is these are also these, these, these companies that we're speaking of, the Googles of the world, the Facebooks of the world, they don't have borders. You know, their, their information is everywhere. There, yeah, everywhere in the cloud and the cloud exists on the planet and these facilities are all over the world. And I don't know if any of us knows exactly what country our data is stored in. We'd like to think that it's kept in Canada. Right. It's not. It's not. Yeah. Well, it's an Amazon Web Services. They're responsible for 80, 90 percent of the the traffic in the world. I think they They own a large share. Is there such thing as a private space anymore? If this if this goes this route and you can have backdoor access even into encrypted files, if the technology is possible, where do you go to have truly private conversations if your devices are listening to you? And there, there's companies tackling tackling these problems today. You know, uh, and I think what, what actually the unfortunate thing about this is that Google and Facebook and Amazon will likely buy them over the course of a few years. <laughs> yeah, a few years. <laughs> yeah, but there are companies tackling these these very issues today and. Uh, just like, you know, if you go back 10 or 20 years, people were talking about viruses and, you know, it's, you know, you, you had McAfee and these other sort of software companies that were designing software to protect your computer from a virus. Today, you're protecting security. And uh, but I suspect that these companies will just get swallowed up. Yeah, I agree. And, and perhaps our private space is not in the digit in its digital form. But when we are face to face outside of a connected smart home, maybe. Right. You're right. Yeah. And connected smart buildings and offices. Exactly. And And cities now with Google Alphabet trying to create a connected city. Amsterdam in a connected city. Yes. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so my question to both of you, is this enough to get you off social media? It's scroll-free September. Not a large movement, but there are tens of thousands of people around the world who have said no social media for the month. Linda? 
I think if this is a challenge for you in September to stay off social media, then it's a good challenge for you to take. Mm. I agree. I think uh, if you have a, yeah, if you are seriously considering this, then you're probably seriously considering it for a reason. So <laughs> take, uh, take some time away from the computer and uh, yeah, talk to your neighbor. Yeah, I downloaded the new iOS, the beta version of iOS 12. And um, I like the screen time feature. I like it for myself. I, I just to see the, the metrics of how often I pick up my phone, what apps I'm using, um, and just my general usage of my iOS devices. And I really like it for parents who are trying to give kids an allowance of digital time, being able to do that in a nice synchronized way across their uh, devices is interesting. So I think the, uh, the companies that we're talking about are trying to get people to um, value their screen time and use it more judiciously, Apple doing that, Instagram trying to do that. Mm -hmm. We just mentioned a couple of moments ago how these social media companies, they want to keep you on their platform forever if they had their way and they're developing services to do that. Now it still seems possible to turn off social media and you're not going to miss out of too much, but there might become a time where you might miss out on something really valuable. If you turn these platforms off, what do you think? I mean, that's, that's the scary part about it, I think, you know, is that they're they're designing these platforms in a way where um, all of your important life events or what could be important to you, because they're starting to determine that, uh, you know, you can miss that if you're, if you're not on the platform. When, once they get, gather enough data about you and they're starting to get, you know, put things in front of you that, are your, that, are, that interest you, what happens if you purposely shut that off? Are you not going to be interested in anything anymore? Yeah, and I like the <laughs> idea of the do-over, of being able to hit the reset button on these accounts, download your data from Facebook if you like, keep it somewhere you're safe, and then just hit reset. Have a username, the same username, but start over again. Um, that's an interesting proposition being sent around uh, the internet right now to talk about how we can control our use of data being not so kind of landlocked onto a platform because they control and they own our whole history in its digital form. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's nice to, if and when we can, take a piece of ownership over what we generated as our data. As always, Linda, Ali, thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's Linda Focus, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society, and Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at BIV.com, where you can find more business news. We'll be back tomorrow.